crossed into the neighboring nation of Ukraine. The plan was to march through the country to the capital city, Kiev, and the expectation was that they would be met with cheering crowds and flowers and it would all be over within a few days. The reality was and is, as we all know, very different as they were met with fierce resistance and hostility by the people of Ukraine. Over a hundred days later, the fighting continues and who knows how and when it will end. One thing, one thing is certain. You cannot capture the hearts and minds of a nation with military might. But there are other ways to win the allegiance of people. And today as we continue our series in the New Testament book of Acts, we see an example. Let me give you some background. Almost 2,000 years ago, the city of Ephesus was one of the greatest in the Roman Empire. A major Mediterranean port with a population of around 300,000 people. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. That's about western half of today's nation of Turkey. The excavated site of the city, and there's only about a tenth of it being excavated thus far, shows its broad streets, its magnificent buildings, like its library, and its amphitheater seating 25,000 people. We've seen in our series that while Athens was the intellectual center of the ancient world, and the city of Corinth was a major commercial center, Ephesus was primarily known as a religious center, famed throughout the ancient world as the home of the goddess Artemis. Usually equated with Diana, the Roman goddess of the moon and hunting, the Greek goddess Artemis had been fused with some kind of fertility cult in Ephesus. And she was usually depicted as a many-breasted woman, probably based on a meteorite that had fallen nearby in which her figure could be discerned. The temple of Artemis, and we only have a reconstruction of what it looked like, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Situated one and a half miles northeast of the city, it measured 400 feet by 200 feet. That's four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens with over 100 ionic pillars, 60 feet high, supporting an amazing white marble roof. It was presided over by unit priests and three grades of priestesses who served, serviced the cult prostitution that flourished there. Ephesus was also a major financial and banking center where merchants, kings, and even cities made deposits and where their money could be saved safely kept under the guardianship of the deity. The economy of the city depended on the temple worship. Thousands of pilgrims and tourists visited Ephesus every year, seeking food and lodging and entertainment, as well as souvenirs and talismans. That's a picture of the city of Ephesus. So it was that around the year 54 AD, by our later dating, of course, a small party of men entered the city and walk down the streets. And if you've ever been there, and I've been there twice, and if you ever get a chance to visit, you walk down this broad street and you imagine this little party led by a man like his name, 
Paulos, which means small, was a small man in size, but not in vision and intellect. He was not a tourist or a pilgrim. He was a missionary. Or to use the term that he used to describe himself, he described himself as an apostle. That means one sent by God with a message. A message about one Jesus of Nazareth, crucified in Jerusalem, but raised from the dead, who he declared was the Son of God and the Messiah promised in the Hebrew Scriptures. And although none of the residents of this vast city realized it at the time, the worship of their goddess Artemis, and indeed the worship of all the gods of the ancient world, was under threat. For Paul's message, the message he preached, which he called the good news or gospel, was powerful. The power of God. That's our theme this morning. So let's look in more detail about what happened in Ephesus and how it challenged that great city and its worshippers. For this same word, this word of power, still has power to challenge the citizens of Edinburgh as it did with those in Ephesus. I think Caroline's going to read our reading this morning and she'll introduce it. Thank you, Caroline. So if you've got a Bible handy in a chair nearby, um, why don't you grab it and head to page 1,115. And we're going to read from Acts 19 and verse 8. So big 19 and small 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to those who were ill, and their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia 
a little longer. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Notice, if you've got the Bible in front of you, and I hope you have, or so that it'll come on the screen. Notice how Luke summarizes what happened in Ephesus after 27 months there. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So let's look at this together and focus on the two aspects mentioned here. First of all, the spreading of the word. How did it spread? And then the effects of the word. What changes did it bring about? First of all, the spreading of the word. Paul did not begin in... I wonder, just let me pause for a moment. I wonder if you'd had a, a project like this. How am I going to reach this vast city with the good news of Jesus? You've got no military might, nothing else. What are you going to do? Well, Paul didn't march up to the temple of Artemis with a placard saying, down with Diana. No, as we've seen in the account of Paul's uh, missionary journeys in the book of Acts, his policy was not primarily one of confrontation, but one of proclamation and persuasion. And we see this in Ephesus. Initially, as was always his practice, he begins with the Jewish synagogue. Paul entered the synagogue, verse 8, and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. The synagogue would be kind of like the modern equivalent of a church. The message then was met with some rejection, obstinacy we read. And so Paul moved on to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, <clears throat> and he hired an, a lecture hall nearby, owned by a man named Tyran Tyrannus. We assume that Tyrannus was his nickname, because Tyrannus means tyrant. And one can hardly imagine a parent looking at their baby and saying, hmm, I think we'll call him tyrant. Well, maybe some of your parents could, uh, <laughs> after you've been around with a baby for some time. But anyway, we assume it was a nickname. And their daily discussions were held. Notice the words. He took the disciples with him. This is verses 9 and 10. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Notice his approach. He argued persuasively. He had discussions. The Greek word is dialogomai, from which we get dialogue. He dialogued with people. Day after day, week after week, month after month, for two years. One writer, John Stock, comments, Paul's presentation of the gospel was serious, well-reasoned, and persuasive. Because he believed the gospel to be true, he was not afraid to engage the mind of his hearers. He didn't simply proclaim his message in a kind of take-it-or-leave-it manner. Instead, he marshaled his arguments to demonstrate his case. He was seeking, notice these words, he was seeking to convince in order to convert. And in fact, as Luke makes plain, many were persuaded. The Christian message is one <clears throat> that stands up to question and answer, to reason and an argument. That's why we've invited you, if you've got a device, to log on to Slido. And if you've got any questions about what I'm saying, to post them. And we'll try and answer some of them at the conclusion of the service. That's why we preach God's word week by week in this church, month after month, year after year. This, I'm sure, will be our practice as we plan to launch another church in 2023. 
But should you be thinking about, maybe I should volunteer for this enterprise, notice the time and effort and commitment involved in this. The time and effort and commitment involved in it. One text of the New Testament says the teaching hall, the teaching schedule, we're told the teaching schedule in the hall of Tyrannus took place between the 5th and 10th hour of the day. That's Roman counting. So that's 11 o'clock in the morning to 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Suggesting that Tyrannus would probably use the hall himself for his own lectures or for someone else's lectures and teaching. When it got to 11 o'clock in that part of the world, people took an extended siesta and lunch till about late afternoon, about 4 o'clock. What was Paul doing in the early part of the day? Well, we know he was a tent maker by trade. And so in order to make a living, he was doing tent making work. And then when 11 o'clock came, he transferred over. And for five hours every day, he used his hall to teach and preach. Now, no doubt Tyrant was uh, happy to rent out his hall to Paul for this period. But work it out for a moment. If Paul taught five hours a day for two years, take off a day a week for the Sabbath when he wouldn't do it, it comes to, I think it's 3,150 hours he spent in Ephesus teaching God's word and engaging and debating with people. No wonder Luke records in verse 10, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. One writer kind of visualized, visualized the scene. All roads in this province of Asia converged on Ephesus. It was the big capital city, like I'm going up to London or I'm going up to Edinburgh if you live in other parts of Scotland. And so they visited Ephesus from time to time. They wanted to buy or sell things. Or maybe they're visiting a relative or frequenting the baths or attending games in the stadium or watching a drama in the theatre or, more importantly, going to worship the goddess Artemis in the fantastic temple and doing other unmentionable things as part of the worship there. And while they were in Ephesus, someone said, there's this guy preaching and teaching every day in the hall of Tyrannus for five hours every day. He's speaking and answering questions. You should go along and hear him. And so people did. And many listened and many were converted. And those who were converted carried the seed of the gospel with them when they went back home. And so churches were planted in these places. There are churches mentioned in the New Testament. We have no record of Paul or any of the other official missionaries carrying the message. But different people carried the seed of the gospel with them and planted these churches. You see, this is how the kingdom of God grows. This is how God's work continues, not by military might, but slowly, imperceptibly. Jesus taught a parable about this that expresses it well. It says that Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. This is how the word was spread. This is how the word of Jesus, the gospel, continues to spread throughout the world today, permeating the good news of the kingdom. So that's the spreading of the word. Notice, secondly, the effects of the word. Look again at our concluding verse in verse 26. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. The word translated power there is an unusual word, well, a different word to the normal word power. It means, let me give you a quote, a deed manifesting great power with the implication of some supernatural force. 
a deed of great power with supernatural force. You see, Paul has been arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, verse 8. He's in Ephesus, the occult capital of the ancient world. And so a power encounter between the Holy Spirit and the evil spirits who were dominant in Ephesus was inevitable. There's a power conflict here. So it's significant that we read here of extraordinary events. Uh, Look again at verse 11 and 12. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. This is very unusual, even for Paul and even for the book of Acts. The handkerchiefs and aprons, people believe, were the clothes and sweatbands he used when he was doing his tent-making work. And in some way, they were carried to people who were sick and people who were possessed by evil spirits. They're like the healing miracles of Jesus in the Gospels. Authenticating, demonstrating the truth, and especially in a place like Ephesus. We should note that Luke, of course, the author of Acts, was a doctor. He's very careful to distinguish between illness and possession. And the strange story of the seven sons of Sceva showed both the reality of evil spirits and their power, and the fact that the name of Jesus couldn't be used like some kind of talisman detached from a personal knowledge of Jesus. And the outcome is these seven people are left naked and bleeding. And the further outcome is they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. And those who believed in Jesus... Change followed. Notice radical repentance, verse 19. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Ephesus was famous for these scrolls. They were called Ephesian grammatory or letters. And they were supposed to contain magic spells that you could use in certain circumstances. They were sold for great prices. And they could have been sold for a lot of money. But these people who became believers in Jesus burned them as a sign of their genuine repentance. The total value was a huge sum. If you look at the footnote, a drachma was worth a day's wages. Then 50,000 drachmas is like, I kind of did it on a calculator, 136 years of salary. So let's just pause for a moment because you read this and you think, what on earth is that about? What do you make of these things? Now, if I was preaching in Nigeria or India where I have lived and worked and preached, I wouldn't need to kind of talk much about this because people in those parts of the world, nod your heads, Nigerians and Indians, these kind of things people are aware of as a reality in their lives. We lived in a Nigerian village. We knew these kind of things and what was happening in these circumstances. I'm not sure that we're so sceptical of such things in our secular society as we might think. A recent survey of 2,952 adults aged 18 to 65 in the UK revealed that 82% believed in the supernatural, 68% said they'd experienced some sort of supernatural event, and 34 said they would pay a psychic to try and communicate directly with a loved one. Whether you believe in such things or have been involved in them, and many of you will know that my wife, Nita, became a Christian out of this background in a remarkable way. The power of the word is greater than any other power and can set you free. Even if you're from a religious background, as I was when I became a Christian in my teens. 
It will lead to costly action. Notice that they believed, and as a consequence, they realized there were things in their lives that they needed to burn. So let me ask you a direct question. If you're a believer in Jesus, okay, what are the things you've burnt? And what are the things you still need to burn? We just moved house recently. What a nightmare. And I tell you, I got embarrassed going up to the rubbish dump day after day. And I kept saying to the men, I think this will be my last trip. And then I filled the car with other things. I tell you, though, it's wonderfully therapeutic, isn't it? Have you done it? You know, you take these things and you think, there's no way you can do this. And you kind of creep in and you say to the guy, yeah, that's right. Just throw it in there. Throw it in there. You get rid of these things. And there are things in our lives that we need to get rid of. Okay, if it's worth something, put it on Hope City Precycle. But that's, an, that, that's another story. <laughs> but but, but there, are, there are things in... Let me say this gently. If you're a believer in Jesus and you've never had to burn anything, can I suggest gently that you may not be a Christian at all? Because when you become a Christian, there are all sorts of things, surely, that are in your life that you need, sort, need sorting out. You need to turn from them and you need to burn them and get rid of them. And Jesus talked about this, that if your eye offends you, pluck it out. He's using a metaphor, of course. If your hand offends you, cut it off. It's better to enter heaven losing these things than go to hell with all these things in mind. It will lead to costly action. And can I say something else? This is a lifelong process. You don't sort of reach a point when you say, that's it, I'm sorted. You see, we're moving this new house. Already, I'm sure we're accumulating things. And when we finally go to glory, whenever that might be, our poor children are going to say, why do they keep all these things, you know? We're trying to make it easier for them at the moment, but just, just they need to know that there's still stuff that needs getting rid of. <laughs> this, is, this is a lifelong process. Over 20 years ago, Eugene Peterson uh, who translated the message version of the New Testament, a great pastor and author. He wrote a classic book. It's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Discipleship in an Instant Society. And he comments, one aspect I've been able to identify as harmful to Christians is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. We assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. It cannot you cannot become an instant, overnight, perfectly holy Christian who sorted everything out. So let me encourage you, as I encourage myself after 60 years on the journey, I'm embarrassed to say, to keep going. If you've never started, this is where you begin. Notice they believed and then these things followed. The Apostle Paul didn't say, and all of you have got scrolls, you need to burn them before you can become Christians. No, these people became Christians, and then as a consequence, they realized there were things in their lives they needed to get rid of. And it may be today there are things in your life that you need to burn, that are not helping you, that are distracting you from following Christ. If you've never started, just start where you are. Maybe you've been coming to this church for some time. You've, you've heard the message, you've heard... The, what we've been sharing together. We've tried to answer your questions, but there comes a point, there comes a point where you know enough to take a step of faith and put your faith in Jesus. 
And as you begin, so God begins to work in your life because you're under new management. And there are things that you need to get rid of, but you need to progress of. And just keep going because it's a, I love that book title. It's a long obedience in the same direction. You see, the word, the word of the gospel has power to free you from whatever binds you. I don't know. Maybe you're involved in occult things. It's quite possible. Maybe there are other things in your life and you think, I can never be free of these things. I want to tell you that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone. Everyone, says the Bible. Romans 1.16. Everyone who believes. That's a challenge I want to leave with you. Let me just finish briefly where we began at Ephesus. As I said, if you're ever on holiday in Turkey and they say, would you like to visit Ephesus? Some other name of it. Do go. It's an amazing archaeological site. However, if you go, you're going to be disappointed if you want to find the Temple of Artemis. The only record of it is an inscription in the British Museum and the site of the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, is now a swamp in which there's only one pillar which is actually a reconstruction of something else. And you will search in vain for worshippers of Artemis and all those gods who were worshipped in countless millions in the first century. As one writer puts it, remarkably, within 300 years, as Christianity advanced, idolatry virtually disappeared in the ancient world. This is not the same as saying the world became truly Christian. It didn't. But idolatry vanished. It just ended. You see, there is power in the word. Not a military power. Not a coercive power. But a persuasive power. The power of the Holy Spirit to change and transform individuals Cities and societies, cities like Ephesus, and even cities like Edinburgh. Let's pause for a moment and think about what God may have said to us this morning, and then John's going to lead us in a song. Maybe you've never started that journey yet, and today is the day when you need to begin. You simply need to turn to God and admit your need. to turn from your own way of life and turn and put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus this morning and there are things that you realize this morning that you need to burn to get rid of. With God's help, determine to do that and to move forward. And however long you've been on the journey. Lord we commit ourselves again to that long road of obedience in the same direction. To follow Christ. Until you call us into your presence. Lord Jesus returns again. So hear our prayers. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Good job.